I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. If you didn't bring a Bible with you or don't have one, uh, the red covered books in the chairs around you are Bibles. And their page number that we're going to be reading from is in the bulletin. John chapter 7. We're going to be looking at the first 24 verses. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to him, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would... Send the Holy Spirit into our midst, open our eyes and our hearts that we might receive your word as the Holy Spirit presses it into us, molds us, forms us by your word so that we might be more and more the people of your delight, the people who bring you glory. We pray you would do this because we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Well, we have an interesting phrase that has made its way into our vocabulary as a culture more and more 
over recent years. It's an interesting phrase. It's a phrase that when you think about it is a little bit odd. And it goes something like this. Speak your truth. Or perhaps if you're saying it, it would be, I speak my truth. And it's this idea that something can be true for me, even if it's contradicted by other people or facts or information. That in conversation, discussion, debate, my truth, what I believe is true, is just as valid as what anybody else says is true. And, in fact, it must be received, it must be accepted, it must be believed because it's true for me. And these days, anybody can find some source out there, whether a news channel or a website or a podcast, that affirms their truth. But you don't even need that, because as long as it's true for you, then it's real, it's valid, and it must be accepted. We fashion, we form, we shape facts and details into what we want to be true, and then we assert that it is true for us. People have been doing that with Jesus since the start of his public ministry in the first century. People have molded and shaped Jesus into what fits their own desires, their own needs, what is convenient for them, what is comfortable to them. Taking bits and pieces of who Jesus is and what Jesus taught and what Jesus did and then shaping them into the Jesus that they want. People who don't believe in Jesus do that. But people who profess faith in Jesus also do that at times. Over and over and over again in the Gospels, we see Jesus himself refusing to allow people to make him in their image, mold them to their liking, mold him to their liking. We see Jesus calling people to embrace him for who he is and what he does, not just their vision or version of him. You can't just take the things of Jesus, the things that he did, the claims that he made that you like and embrace those. It's impossible to accept some of his teaching and some of his benefits that come from Jesus without accepting Jesus as a whole and who he is. But that doesn't mean that people don't try. We certainly see that happening here in these opening verses of John chapter 7. We see several different groups of people trying to make Jesus be what they want him to be or what they think they can easily dismiss. We see that with his own brothers. We see that with the Jewish religious authorities. We see that with the crowd in the temple. So what I want us to do today is to look at these these three groups or these three scenes, if you will, in these verses, uh, verses one through twenty four. And let's look and see what they tell us about who Jesus isn't and who Jesus is. Before we jump in, just a word about the timing and the context of this passage that we're looking at today. If you'll notice at the beginning of verse one, John says that it was after this. Now. We might assume that what John is telling us is that the events that he's about to write in chapter 7 took place right after the events that we've been looking at in chapter 6. But we need to remember, as we've talked about before, 
John wrote his gospel, not primarily to give us a chronology of Jesus's life and ministry. The synoptics do that. Matthew, Mark and Luke. John in his gospel was more focused on giving us a theology of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. You may remember back in chapter 6, in verse 4, that those events took place during the Passover. The Passover took place in the spring, in March or April time period. But here in chapter 7, we read in verse 2 that these events are taking place during the feast of of the booths or the tabernacles. And that took place in the fall. So what we have as we go from chapter 6 to chapter 7 is a gap of about six months. And that's the reason why John says what he does in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. That's what he was doing for those six months. He was teaching, possibly doing other miracles in Galilee for that time period. We also need to understand this, this term, the Feast of Booths, or sometimes it's referred to as the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, it is one of the three great festivals or feasts for Israel, along with the Passover and Pentecost. The Feast of Booths was a time for God's people to remember the the time that the Lord led his people in the wilderness for 40 years as they were leaving Egypt and going to the promised land. It, It was a call for the people of God to focus on how God provided for them and how God protected them. People from all over the country would gather in Jerusalem to celebrate and to feast. And they would build these small temporary booths or tabernacles to live in for the eight days of the festival. You could think of our tents. They would have these little tents that they would stay in for the eight days of the festival. It was to symbolize the booths or the tents that Old Testament Israel lived in while they were traveling to the promised land. So this feast, the Feast of Booths, was a time of excitement and and joy and celebration and expectation. And that's the context as we come to verse 3 and we read that Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave here, that's Galilee, and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. These are Jesus' own brothers. We know from other parts of the scriptures that Joseph and Mary had other children after Jesus was born. We know of at least James and Joseph and Simon and Jude, uh, brothers of Jesus. And John tells us in verse 5 that these brothers at this time were not believers in Jesus. That wouldn't happen until after Jesus' resurrection. They didn't believe in Jesus for who he was, for what he had come to do. But they did believe certain things about Jesus because they wanted Jesus to go up to Jerusalem to the feast where there would be crowds and crowds of people. Why did they want him to do that? Well, what they said was, we want you to go up there to do your miracles and your signs and your wonders. There'll be the big crowd there and people could see them. Maybe even some of those disciples that we read about last time leaving Jesus in chapter 6. Maybe they would see them and, and come back to follow, follow Jesus. Now why did they want him to go up and do those miracles and signs? Well, look again at what, he said, what it says in verse 4. They were saying to Jesus, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. They wanted Jesus to build his platform 
to build his brand, to go where the action is, to make a big display, to show himself to the world, probably for his their own benefit as well. But it's because they saw Jesus as a dynamic, talented, inspirational, motivational speaker. And he needed to go get in front of the crowds of people so that the people could hear him and he could gain a following. But that's not who Jesus is. Instead, what does Jesus say? Who does he say that he is as he interacts with his brothers? Well, you can see that in verses six through nine. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Who is Jesus? Who does he say he is as he interacts with his brothers? He says he is the sovereign Lord God of the universe who knows all things, who knows that it's not his time to go to the feast as his brothers wanted him to do. The brothers wanted him to go to Jerusalem and to enter into the city like he would some months later at Passover in a triumphant parade. And they wanted him to do it now. But Jesus knew it wasn't his time. He had more work to do before that event would take place. He would go according to his timing, not theirs. That's because he is the sovereign Lord and Savior who is in full of full of control of what will happen and when it will happen. That's who Jesus is. But we also see from this interaction with his brothers, another part of who Jesus is. He's a patient and compassionate brother. Can you imagine how disappointing and discouraging it must have been for Jesus to know that his own brothers didn't believe in who he truly was? How frustrating it must have been that even them, they didn't understand. They didn't get it. And yet, did you notice here in other places in the scripture where Jesus interacts with his family, there is no sense of anger. There's no sense of impatience. There's no sense of a lack of love in Jesus's words to his brothers. Why not? Because Jesus is a patient and compassionate brother who loves even his unbelieving family. This is who Jesus is. That leads us to a couple of applications as we look at this first scene, this this first uh, interaction with these brothers of his. The first is this. Growing up around Jesus does not mean that you believe in Jesus. J.C. Ryle put it this way. Seeing Christ's miracles, hearing Christ's teaching Living in Christ's own company were not enough to make someone a believer. The mere possession of spiritual privileges never yet made anyone a Christian. Let me get the eyes of our young people here in the room this morning. You have an incredible blessing of being in a family where your mother and or father love you and they tell you about Jesus 
and they teach you about who He is and what He has done. And they, they bring you to church where you hear about who Jesus is in Sunday school and you hear about Jesus from the preaching of the Word. And that is an incredible blessing that you have as a young person. But that's not what makes you a Christian. You have to listen to what you're being taught. You have to hear what they're telling you about who Jesus is. And you have to say, I believe this myself. This is not just what my mom or my dad or my grandparents are teaching me. This is what I believe. I believe in the real Jesus. I love Jesus. He is my Lord and my Savior. There's a second application here. There's hope. There's encouragement for anybody who has family members who are not believers. Jesus knows what that's like. He understands. He can relate. We need to follow his example here. We need to keep loving our unbelieving family members in word and in deed. We need to keep patiently praying for them. Looking for opportunities to tell them about who the real Jesus is. Looking for opportunities to help them understand who the real Jesus is. Rather than some false ideas of who they think He is. We need to be a loving, patient family member with those in our family who are not believers. So, here in this first scene... We see this picture of Jesus. He's not a dynamic, he's not just a dynamic, talented, motivational speaker. Jesus is the sovereign Lord and Savior, and he is the compassionate and patient brother. We see a second scene here in verses 10 through 18. Here Jesus is interacting. Not with his brothers, but with the Jewish authorities and the people in the temple. And as we look at verses 8 through 10, they might seem a little bit confusing at first. I don't know if you noticed that or not. Jesus told his brothers that he wasn't going to go to the feast. His brothers ended up going to Jerusalem. We're told that Jesus stayed in Galilee. And then the next sentence says, but then he went. So what's going on here? Some have suggested that Jesus was lying to his brothers. Others have suggested that Jesus was just a fickle-minded kind of guy and he couldn't make up his mind of what he was going to do. I think there's a better explanation of what Jesus was saying here. What Jesus was saying to his brothers was, I'm not going up to the feast with you. I'm not going up to the feast at the time that you're going or in the way that you want me to go. He wasn't going to let his brothers determine when or how he would go. He was in control of those details. He wasn't saying that he wouldn't ever go. He knew that he needed to fulfill the responsibility of attending this important feast. He just wasn't going to let the brothers decide for him when and how it would go. So after a little bit of time, he ended up going to the feast in Jerusalem. But we're told in the text that he went quietly. He went in private. In other words, he went on his own terms. And John tells us in verse 11 that the Jews were there and they were looking for Jesus at the feast. And the Jews there refers to the Jewish religious authorities. They had already determined, we've seen it already in John, they had already determined to kill Jesus and they were looking for opportunities to trap him and to get him in trouble so that he would get arrested and then could be executed. And notice what we're told here in the text 
about what some of the people thought of Jesus. Verse 12, some people thought he's a good man. He's a moral, upstanding citizen. He lives a good life. He's a good example. He's kind. He's loving. Others at the end of verse 12 said, no, he's actually leading people astray, either intentionally because he's a deceiver or unintentionally because he's a fool. And notice we read more about what the people thought about who Jesus was as we get to verses 14 and 15. Because about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jewish authorities, therefore, marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? These Jewish authorities, the people in the temple, they, they were amazed. They were marveling because they were seeing Jesus teach. And yet they knew that Jesus had not gone through the usual and expected training to be a rabbi. He hadn't gone to the approved rabbinical schools. He hadn't trained under the known rabbi masters. But they were amazed at him because he knew his Bible and he quoted it and he used it in his teaching. They were amazed because they thought Jesus was a good, wise, knowledgeable and skilled teacher. Without any training. Now, it is true that Jesus is a wise, knowledgeable, skilled teacher without any training. But that's not only what Jesus is. As we look at how Jesus interacted with the people in the second scene, he shows us who he is. Look at verse 16. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. Who is Jesus? He's somebody who's been sent. And who sent Jesus? Well, we've already heard it in John chapter 3 and several other places as well. John chapter 3 verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Just a few verses later in verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Jesus was the one who was sent by God the Father into this earth. And why? Well, as we look at verses 16 and 17 again, we see Jesus answered them, My teaching is not my own, but His who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Who is Jesus? He is the one that the Father sent into the world with a mission. And what is the mission? It is to do God's will. It is to bring a message. It is to bring a teaching to all peoples, to bring the message of good news, to bring the message of the gospel of grace, and not just to bring the message of the gospel, but to actually accomplish the gospel by dying on the cross and rising from the grave. That's who Jesus is. He's the one who's been sent by the Father on a mission to bring the gospel to the people of God. But notice also who Jesus is. We see in verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. Who is Jesus? He is the one that God the Father has sent into the world on a mission to bring the gospel with the ultimate purpose of bringing the glory of God to the front. 
Humanly speaking, Jesus wasn't seeking glory for himself, but in everything he did, he sought the glory of his father. This is who Jesus really is. Yes, he is a good man. Yes, he is a wise, knowledgeable teacher. But more than that, he is God incarnate. He is the God man who has been sent here by the father to bring the good news of the gospel, to die on the cross and rise from the grave, to redeem people to himself and to do it all for the glory of God, the father above all. That leads to a couple more applications from this part of the passage. The first is simply this. Is this the Jesus that you believe in? This is the real Jesus. You can't just have Jesus as a good man, as a moral example, as a good teacher. You have to take all of who he is, not just the parts that you like about Jesus. He is he is the one with the message of the gospel who accomplished the mission of the gospel. And he calls people to believe in him that they might have eternal life. Do you believe in this Jesus? Do you submit your life to this Jesus? And secondly, as we see what Jesus said in verses 16 and 17 about his teaching, about teaching God's will, about teaching from God, it points us to what we now have as the completed scriptures, the word of God, the teaching of God, the will of God revealed In the word of God and what Jesus says here is so clear. We are to submit ourselves to the word of God. That means that we need to be reading it. It needs we need to be learning it. And then it means that as we hear what it says about how we are supposed to be living, that we change our thoughts and our actions and our words to be in conformity with it. It's not the other way around. The word doesn't change to fit our lives, our desires, what's comfortable for us. We are in submission to the authority of the word. Is that how you live your life? In submission to the word of God as the ultimate authority over you. And for the Christian, this should actually be a great delight for us to do. A delight to be in submission to the word of God, because what Jesus says here is that to be in submission to the word of God means that we are doing the very will of God, that we are pursuing the glory of God, and that when we are in submission to it, we are true and there is no falsehood in us. There is a third scene here that I want us to see. It's in it's in verses 19 through 24. As Jesus transitions from the conversation with the religious authorities and he begins to have a conversation with the larger crowd that is there in the temple while he's teaching. You can see it beginning in verse 19. Jesus says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? 
Now it's the same general context. He's still in the temple. He's teaching. But the interaction is now transitioning to the, the crowd of people in the temple. And Jesus says what he says in verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Now what's, what's going on? That seems like it's a little bit out of the blue. What's Jesus doing? And what is, what is he saying? Well, he brings up Moses again. Like he did in chapter 6. But here... His reference to Moses is not connected with the Exodus or with the manna in the wilderness that we saw in chapter six. Here, as he mentions Moses, it's a reference to the law of God. And what was the point that Jesus is making here? He's basically telling the people that he's speaking to. You have the Old Testament law that was given to you by God through Moses. And you know what it says. You know what it says in the Ten Commandments. And you know what the Sixth Commandment says specifically. Thou shalt not murder. And yet here you are trying to kill me. An innocent man. You don't keep the law. You don't even keep this one commandment. And when Jesus said that, it caused the crowd to jump into the conversation. That's when we read verse 20. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? As we hear what Jesus said to them and then how this crowd is responding, we see how the crowd, what they thought of who Jesus was. They thought he was a crazy, law-breaking criminal. That's what they're saying when they they say to him, you have a demon. They're, They're saying, have you lost your mind? Are you delusional? Who is seeking to kill you? And then down in verse 23, we're going to cover this more in just a second. But just notice that Jesus references the fact that he healed a man and it happened to take place on the Sabbath. And for the people, that meant that uh, it was a reference back to chapter five in the story that we saw with the healing of the man at the pool of Bethsaida. And it happened to be on the Sabbath day. And because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, that made the people believe he was a violator of the Sabbath law. And because he was a lawbreaker, he was a criminal. This is who many of the people thought Jesus was, a crazy, delusional, law-breaking criminal. But as Jesus responds to them, we see who Jesus really is. You see that in verses 21 through 24 that I read just a moment ago. There's, There's a lot packed into these verses. Jesus references Moses, circumcision, the Sabbath, healing, and judging. So what does all that mean? Well, here's the flow of Jesus' argument here in these final verses of our passage for today. This is the sense of what he's saying to the crowd. He's he's saying, listen, I I did one miracle, the the, the healing of that man at the pool of Bethsaida. and, And on the one hand, you all marveled at it. And on the other hand, you got angry because it was done on the Sabbath. But listen. Moses taught you about circumcision in the Old Testament law, that Old Testament rite of cleansing, of of entering into the family of God. And it was commanded that you needed to circumcise all male babies on the eighth day of their life. But if the eighth day of the life of that child happened to fall on the Sabbath, you still did the work of circumcision. Even though you are so incredibly strict about not doing any work on the Sabbath. And yet, you're angry with me because on a Sabbath, I healed a man's entire body. 
What Jesus is saying to them is, look, the whole point of the Sabbath, the whole point of the rite of circumcision was to point to me, Jesus, my healing and redeeming work. This is who Jesus is. He is the one who fulfills the Old Testament Sabbath, that law given to God's people to bless them with rest. The people of God were supposed to remember back to creation when God rested on the seventh day. And they also were to look forward to that day of rest that would be coming and the rest that they had in Christ Jesus. In Jesus Christ, God's people have a rest of all of our striving, of all of our efforts to earn God's acceptance and his blessing and his love. Because in Jesus, we get all of those things without work, without payment, without earning it or meriting it. It is only through faith in Jesus that we get the rest for our bodies and souls that we desperately want and need. And I would suggest to you that that is good news for those of us, and I dare say most of us, whose lives often feel like we're a rat on a wheel in a cage, trying to do more and more and more to make God be okay with us, to make God accept us, to make God bless us. And Jesus says to you today, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest for your souls. That's who Jesus is. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Sabbath. But Jesus is also the one who fulfills the Old Testament circumcision. That sign of belonging to the people of God and of being cleansed. Jesus is the one whose circumcision pointed to. The once and for all bloody sacrifice for the cleansing of the sins of God's people. Through faith in Jesus, we are now made clean. Once and for all, we are marked out and given the status of a child of God. And just like the male babies in the Old Testament who couldn't do anything to earn that status and earn that mark, so it is true for God's people now. As we put our faith in Jesus, we don't earn it. We are given a status of an adopted child of God. We are now in Christ and we get all of the blessings and the privileges and the inheritance of being a child of God. That's who Jesus is. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament circumcision. Jesus is also the one who heals. Just as he healed the man at the pool of Bethsaida, so too he makes our bodies and our souls well. Maybe he'll do that for our bodies in this life. We don't have any guarantee of that. We don't have any promise of that. But we do have a promise that when he comes again, all who are in Christ will receive resurrection bodies. And we also have the promise that he makes our souls well in the very moment that we believe. That's who Jesus is. He's the one who heals our body and soul. And at the very end here of the passage, as we come to the to verse 24, he tells us that we need to judge rightly. So as we finish, this is the question that we have to ask ourselves. Do we know this Jesus? The real Jesus. And do we believe in this Jesus? The real Jesus. 
who he really is, as he's described to us in the Gospels, as Jesus himself explained to us who he is? Or is the Jesus that you believe someone that you have molded to fit your wants and your needs and your desires? Are we like his brothers? Are we like these religious authorities? Are we like the crowd in the temple at Jerusalem? And if we're honest, it's very easy to do. It's very easy to take bits and pieces of Jesus that we like. It's very easy to try to to make Jesus into the Jesus that we want him to be because we're sinners. We're constantly taking his claims and his call and trying to make them easier for ourselves and easier for others. And so the question is, do you reflect Do you look into your heart and your mind and discern when you are doing that? And then when you discern that you are doing that, what do you do in response? We must continually come back to the Word of God. Come back to what is true and right and authoritative over us and submit ourselves to the Word and change our vision, our our version of Jesus to what the Scriptures tell us about who He is. And then as a result, go out and live our lives in accordance with what the Word says about Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, it's so easy for us to try to form and fashion Jesus Jesus after our own image in the way that will make us feel comfortable and convenient. We pray you would forgive us. We pray that you would help us to come back over and over and over again to your word and to believe what it says about who Jesus is, to believe Jesus' own words. And as we do that, Father, we pray that you would help us to root out the idols of our hearts, root out the ways that we try to turn Jesus into something else. It's hard work following our Savior, so we pray for your strength through the work of your Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.